Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. All right. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening to this podcast. And if you dig it, please be sure to subscribe. Give us five stars and a nice review because it really helps. Eric Hurt was in my house the other day. Before I get to him, I want to throw out a great big thanks and a thumbs up to Cathead Vodka out of Jackson, Mississippi because of their vodka, but also for their heart for live music and live musicians. Check them out at catheaddistillery.com and Cathead Vodka on Instagram. I met Eric Hurt when he became my publisher, and due to lack of any good songs, he became my ex-publisher. We stayed friends, and I've loved watching him climb the music biz ladder. He's such a passionate music dude. I can't even imagine what he's going to accomplish in this business. I'm just going to stand back and watch. Here's Eric Hurt. Hi, buddy. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Got some of this cat head vodka, man. That's yeah. what I was just going to say. Yeah, stuff is good. Thank you. Good. Absolutely, yeah. man. Everybody listening, go get you some cat head vodka. This stuff sure. is all right. I've never heard of this stuff, actually, but where do they make this? Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, there, right? Mississippi. Yeah, Same man. place my wife was made. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which what are they doing them? while they make this stuff? I, I do not know. I, man, that's like the old thing, you know. I don't want to see how they make the sausage. I just want to cook and eat the sausage. Yeah. <laughs> just like our friendship, man. Like, I want to enjoy our friendship, but I don't want to know how you were made. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to see how you were made. No, no I, yeah. you probably didn't want to see me wearing this amount of clothing either. But anyway... <laughs> We digress. We digress. So you were born, I believe, in Winsboro, Texas? Yeah, man. Where is that? Uh, it's in northeast Texas, about an hour and a half, uh, hour and 45 minutes east of Dallas. Oh, okay. I usually just tell people I'm from Tyler. Okay. Because everybody seems to know where Tyler is for right. whatever reason. It's weird. People have got a connection to east Texas, but um, so many people know and have some connection to Tyler, so I'll say that's where I'm from. Um, but... Really, about forty-five minutes out of Tyler. Do you ever have anybody go, Tyler? Isn't that right down the road from Winsboro? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, as fate would have it, yes, yeah. it is. Well, actually, recently I did talk to somebody and told them I was from East Texas. They're like, "Where?" And I said, "Well, I tell everybody from Tyler, but from a real small town outside of Tyler." And he's like, "Try me," and I said, "You won't know it." And I told him Winsboro, and he's like, "I used to live in Winsboro." You got it. I'm be like, "You're me. kidding me, man." And um, yeah, crazy. Actually, it was one of the uh, investors um, in uh, MV2, uh, that publishing company. Yeah. Because uh, they're all a bunch of Texas guys. Yeah. And uh, so it was one of those guys I was having lunch with, and I couldn't believe it, man. So we started talking about Winsboro. First time that's ever happened. Dang. Uh, yeah. We'll have to get back to MV2 later on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> was that a musical family? Not at all. No? No, no. I was the only uh, musical one in my family. Uh, I found a guitar in my dad's closet when I was a kid, and um, somebody gave that guitar to my dad because they owed him money, and that was all that they had to pay him with, and really? he didn't know what to do with it, so he just stuck it in his guitar, and years later, I found it. Wasn't any you know, good guitar. It was like an old K 
you know, like a Gibson Hummingbird knockoff K guitar. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I found that, and then um, I started teaching myself how to play. Started taking some lessons from an old guy in town. And um, what did he teach you? Just chords and stuff. Chords. Yeah, my first song I ever learned was uh, just a single nut, uh, single note thing called "Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley." Nice. Uh, so then it went from there, you know, and started learning chords and stuff, and then that, that progressed into <clears throat> me wanting to pursue music. Yeah. Um, and you know. Blah blah blah. Going to college and studying music. So you came up here to go to Belmont. Yeah, I went to uh, Tyler Junior College okay. first. Um, so <clears throat> ever since I was really little, I knew music was all I ever wanted to do, but I didn't have a clue what that was. I always yeah. thought there was being an artist, writing songs. Had no idea about the business. Um, just daydreamed about just music, being around it, yeah. and um, so. Once I got to high school, I knew that that's what I wanted to pursue. I didn't know how or where, or, you know, or anything about it. But um, so I went to Tyler Junior College and I studied. Um, I majored in music there. And um, while I was there, somebody told me about Belmont University and a great music program that they had in Nashville. And at, at that time, I knew that if I was going to really pursue music, I had to move out to L.A., New York, or Nashville. And since Belmont came at such a high recommendation, uh, that was good. And the fact that Nashville was closer to Texas than L.A. or New York, yeah. that was even better. So um, I graduated from Tyler Junior College in uh, 96, I believe, and um, then came up to Belmont to finish out a music degree. Um, no business classes at all. It was all music. Composition and arranging was my emphasis. That's what I was going to ask you. You didn't take publishing you didn't take None any of, of that it. stuff it's all music no i had a uh like an intro of music business class mm -hmm. and i don't even remember what they taught in that class everything else was composition and arranging and uh um i really thought that uh, i was going to pursue things and move out to california and pursue some film scoring stuff okay because i was really interested in that uh but just the way things turned out I ended up staying and getting into the business side of things how did that happen? Because your first gig was, unless I'm completely wrong, was with Joe Scaife? Uh, no. No? Actually, that was later. Um, it all started um, with an internship that I had with Alma, Alma Irving Music oh. Publishing. So um, anyway, great publishing company. Uh, I think they may have been the world's largest independent publishing yeah, company at the time. at all. Um, but... That was, I think, my senior year of college, and I wasn't required to have an internship with my major, but uh, for some reason, I knew the value of, you know, the relation, the relational aspect of yeah. what we do, you know, getting to know people, building that network and building friends. Um, so I got an internship and was lucky enough to land there. And um, a lot of those guys, you know, Daryl Franklin, Bobby Absolutely. Reimer, Scott Gunner. Scott Gunner. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, they were all great. David Conrad was running it. Oh, yeah. Um, but really great crew. Craig Wiseman, <clears throat> hit songwriter, was writing there. Was Tom Schuyler still writing there? Tom Schuyler was still there. Uh huh. I remember him being around there. Um, but I was obviously the low man on the totem pole, but it was, I didn't realize how valuable of a thing that was for me at the time, but that started my real relationships in the music business. And then, um, I graduated from 
high or from college, that internship ended and I needed a job and I happened to immediately land at a Christian record label named uh, Forefront Records. Oh, yeah. So we had like uh, DC Talk, Rebecca St. James, Audio Adrenaline, all those like big artists back in the day, you know. They were rocking, man. That was the label to be at, you know, then. No doubt. Um, but I didn't necessarily, the job I took there, I didn't necessarily was looking for. I wanted something creative, you know. I wanted to be back on the publishing side because I knew what that was like at Alamo Irving. Is that what your internship was mostly, um, like work, just working with songs and songwriters and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, just a lot of grunt work, you yeah. know, filing lyrics, you know, back when people filed lyrics in filing cabinets, you know, <clears throat> typed them out, yeah. you know, transferring, <laughs> going down in the tape room and spending hours with dats, you know, and Dude. transferring songs over and um, just a lot of grueling stuff but um but i was around the writers and i saw what um you know bobby and scott and daryl and all those guys were doing and i wanted to be a part of that yeah you know, i wanted to be a part of the creative side those early stages um but i needed a job right out of college and i happened to land at a record label and um and it, i built some great relationships there and people that i still work with to this day uh, but I was there for a few years, and because I maintained my relationship with Alma Irving through that time, they recommended me to Joe Scaife when he started his okay. joint venture with California Entertainment. Um, and um, Alma Irving and Janice Jackson, she was doing administration there at the time, especially she helped me out so much. Mm -hmm. man. She was awesome. Um, but... Um, I've really got her to thank for being where I'm at because she recommended me to Joe and um, then Joe and Cal, Cal four hired me and that was my first real publishing gig. Okay. So that's kind of a long story, but yeah. no, that's good. What were you doing at Joe's company? Mm. Joe only had one writer at the time. And this Canadian writer that lived in Nashville named Steve Fox. Oh yeah. So, um, even though it was a joint venture with Cal Four and they had some great writers over there, um, Steve was the only writer that I worked with because that was part of Joe's deal. So I just dug in hard to Steve's catalog and worked closely with him and then just like dove in head first. I mean, Joe was awesome, man. I still am good friends with him. He was a great mentor. Uh, but it was funny. He just left, let me do my thing. You know, he was like, man, just come in and work, pitch songs. You know? So had you ever pitched a song before? Never. What was that like? Uh, like, <laughs> I mean, my first pitch meeting was with uh, Autumn House. Well, she's at least a sweet person. Oh yeah, yeah. It was the best. So yeah, that's yeah. a good. That's a good. Good first yeah. meeting. I think that she was my. It was yeah. It was either her or Kirk at uh, at um, Lyric Street. Was it Kirk? Anyway, I don't know. Uh, it might have been might have been Autumn, but uh, so <clears throat> I met her when I did meet her. Autumn, if you're listening to this, now you <laughs> now you know the story. Walked into her office and I was like, "Wow, you know, I'm gonna like this job. <laughs> you know, if I get to pitch songs to people like this, yeah, she's pretty." <laughs> uh, but you know I can't remember what songs I played and if they were on the target for what she was looking for or not but afterwards I sent her a cover letter wrote and typed out dear Autumn thank you so much for your time and blah 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 and mailed it to her and she uh, <laughs> she called Mike Molinar yeah. Mike now runs um, 
big machines publishing company. And, uh, Mike was at uh, Cal Ford at the time, but she called Mike and said, Hey, um, really nice guy over there. Uh, but just give him a heads up. He doesn't need to send everybody. <laughs> thank you letters after a meeting. <laughs> so Mike came over and said, Hey, here's, here's how we do this. Yeah. You know, very kind. Yeah. <laughs> very, very kind. Just not necessary. Yeah. 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 I think the publishing thing, I mean, <clears throat> did you have any idea about, the reason I ask this is when I came here from a little town in Nebraska, every album I had, and I've said this a million times, I'd look at the back of a all songs written by Van Halen, all mm-hmm. songs written by ZZ Top. I didn't realize that people wrote songs for other people. Yeah. I was that out of it. And then you hear a song that you hear as a publisher, as a guitar vocal, sung by somebody that can't sing very well and played by somebody who can't play very well. And then you go to that demo stage and then you pitch it and then you hear the record. It's like, that's the coolest process in the world, yeah. man. Yeah. And to hear that a million times like you have is yeah. pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Man, it's, that side of it is awesome. Um, you know, I think that on any side of the business, any of us are on, you know, there's pros and cons, you know, that side is really special because, um, even you, you know, as a songwriter, I mean, we're privy and, and, and have access to all of these songs and, and honestly hit songs that no one will ever hear. Yeah. You know, other than the people within the industry. Yeah. Um, because there's not enough artists out there to record them or, yeah. uh, or they just don't get to the people that want to record them or whatever. So we get to hear a lot of amazing, amazing music by hit songwriters, you know, these well crafted songs. That's fun. Yeah. It's a bit sad to think that, man, this is going to sit on the shelf. Yeah. You know, like, it's, even though I've pitched this so many times, it's probably never going to come out. You yeah. Know? But, um, so that's a, that's a kind of a, I don't know. Um, that's a tough thing to swallow, you yeah. know, but also a cherished thing in the way of like, dude, we're, we get to be the ones. Dude. We get to be the ones to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, and and it's it can be so disheartening because you know the realities of the work that goes into it and how few of those actually get out you know get out there where the public can hear. But man, how special it is that you know we get to hear that stuff. Oh man, yeah. And it, it it's probably frustrating to you and writers to know that <clears throat> now where there was Rebus and Straits and Martinez that weren't necessarily writers, you had a better chance probably of getting something mm-hmm. recorded. Now everybody thinks they're a writer, whether they are or not. So unless you can get your writer on the bus with Casey Ballerini or, or not Casey, Kelsey, yeah, Kelsey yeah. or Lady A or whoever, you're not going to mm-hmm. get on those records. Mm-hmm. And that also is frustrating and leads to more of your greatest hits of that no one will ever hear collection uh yeah absolutely and it makes us really change and you know how we pitch yeah you know where do we put our efforts you know uh is it through just setting up meetings and pitching songs um maybe maybe something sneaks through there you know yeah some people are better at that than others you know i you know i don't know that i'm the best at that you know um because it's so it's a it's a skill set and it's hard yeah um, but th- it's changing a lot, you know. Do you spend just as much time trying to get your writers on in certain camps with artists to try to write with them? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, fortunately, I'm part of a company that's got a lot of great resources that right. helps them yeah. with Black River. And uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> just last week, for example, we uh, we've got a uh, bus, and um, so I lined up a bus run with uh, hit songwriter Michael Hardy. Um, he's got his artist project out called Hardy. It's killer. Uh, but Hardy was on this Morgan Wallen tour, so. I got a couple of my guys together and um, we went out on the road with Hardy and Morgan Wallen, you know, spent yeah. five or six days out on the road riding, going to the shows and, you know, really building relationships. And um, that was great. Got yeah. some amazing songs out of it. We'll see what happens with those songs, but <clears throat> it gives us access to the artist. It builds relationships and which is, you know, really the most important thing in this business is having good relationships with people. So yeah. they want to keep coming back and working with you. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're always looking for new ways to pitch our songs and to pitch our writers and to pitch our artists, you know, um, you know, and, and doing strategic, you know, alignments with these people and create our own camps. When you, when you go to sign a new writer, whether it's a 18 year old kid out of high school, a 20 year old kid out of Belmont or a 40 year old person that's had some success already do you think about that a lot as to who's current artist wise who can i put this person with or is this person just their own entity and man what you're doing is great but you know the dixie chicks aren't cutting anymore or whatever mm -hmm. you know i mean does that come into play when you're looking at signing somebody uh yeah i think a little bit i, th I think on one thing the bigger thing for for me at least is that I know what my crew does right. and I can kind of see the holes, you know, and see like, you know, some things that are changing in the industry and okay, we need to probably fill this gap and, you know, bring in a track guy, right? you know, because we need somebody else like that on our team doing that, you know, or we need to sign another artist that we can develop, you know, so it's, it's really about what the needs are. Yeah. At the time. Um, sometimes it just comes down to like, wow, man, you just absolutely are slaying us and blow us away. Yeah. And we want to be partners with you. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Or not, but it's, it's, it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Can I ask you some questions about publishing that probably a lot of people don't understand? Like what actually, like what would you? What does a publisher do? And I know that's a huge question, but if, like, um, well, uh, stripping it down, the publisher represents the song. Mm -hmm. um, so when you write a song for a publisher, we own that copyright, um, and then on the creative end, we try to expose that copyright so that other people will record the song that you wrote. So n no matter how many people record that song, we own that song. You know, if you write a song and, um, you know, Kelsey Ballerini records it, then we, we own your piece of that. Um, then if Keith Urban records that same song, we still own right. that song. Um, so we represent things on the song level. Um, the flip side of that, the record labels own things on the 
master recording level. So yeah. they don't have a part of the song, but they own the part that Kelsey Ballerini records. And yeah. So I don't know if I'm getting that confusing, but making that confusing, but anyway, so you write the song. Um, and then we look for creative outlets to expose that copyright and to make money off of it, whether that's through getting somebody else to record the song or try to get the song placed in film and TV, um, or some kind of ad campaign. Um, you know, anything that will expose that copyright yeah. and generate money. Yeah. So you say you own the copyright. Can you explain like what a copub would be? Yeah. So, um, uh, if you, um, if we did a full publishing deal, um, and we owned a hundred percent of the copyright, then, uh, then we, we own and we control all aspects of that song. Right. But we, you and I will share in the revenue of that song. Mm. So it's like a 50, 50 thing. If you have a copub, that means you own, um, well, in simple terms, you, you would own 50% of it. This can be split up anyways, but sure. you own 50% of the publishing and we own 50% of the publishing, but you also own a hundred percent of your writer's share. Um, and this can get confusing. It's easier to draw it out on a piece of paper or whatever, yeah. but it's, it's so wacky. But basically, in a scenario like that, you make, make 75 cents on the dollar. Yeah. You know, compared to what we make, you know. Unless there's nine writers. Then. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and that makes it even weirder. You know, yeah. like, it just on your, if we're speaking of just your portion of it. Yeah. You own right, right. that, you yeah. know. Uh, but... Yeah, it gets chopped up in a bunch of weird ways. So, yeah, it can get to where I remember uh, the last when I was at Sony, the last big pop record that came out was a Will Smith record, and I just looked through the liner notes, and every song, and I'm sure it was <clears throat> track guys, a beats guy, whatever. Every song had between eight and twelve writers, <laughs> and I thought that thing can sell five million bucks and you still won't be able to put gas in your car <laughs> oh, or yeah. five million copies. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh my gosh. How, do you, yeah. how does this work? Yeah. We had a song that, uh, <laughs> that had a bunch of writers on it and some kind of pop song. And then we got some use, some sync you mm-hmm. know, request on it. And, um, and, uh, we, at the end of the day, we had 2% of the song and the <laughs> music supervisor called me up and like, Hey man, um, we're about to cut you guys a check for like 75 bucks. <laughs> you know, like this is costing us more to right. do this than it's worth. You, all, you, you know how much a stamp is these days? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of that stuff can get chopped down really yeah. fast, but yeah. Are the splits like that? Are they the same? Cause I know you do a lot of pop and rock <clears throat> stuff. Are the splits the same as in country, like in country, Mm, yeah. To me, if you and me write a song, it's a 50-50 thing, whether you do most of the work or whatever, but just because that's just kind of how it works. Is is, But I've got friends in rock bands that will sit around and go, well, I came up with this line and this line and this line, and at the end of the day, I've got 67% and mm, you've got mm-hmm. 33%. I mean, are the splits the same, or does that stuff still happen? <clears throat> Every town works different. Uh, Nashville's got its own way of working compared to LA and, and to New York. Nashville is so easy yeah. in that regard uh, than the other towns. Um, yes. Yeah, so like you said, for the most part, 
it's just assumed here that it's just a, you know even splits all across the board, no matter how much you contributed or not. Right. If you were in the room and a part of the song, it's going to be an even split. You might not have contributed one line, but we'll never write with you again. Yeah. You know, but on this one, you get an even portion of it. L.A. Um, it's a lot different. You know, if you're dealing with pop, you know, a lot of times the splits on that kind of stuff will work with, uh, you know, since the track is so important to pop music. Um, most of the time that will count as 50% of the song. And then the top line or the lyric and melody will count as the other 50%. So if I'm a producer or a track guy and I do the track and I just blow it out, I'm like, all right, I've done this. And then I hand it over to you and you write the lyric and melody on it. And then you pull in another one of your buddies, you know, to help you write the lyric and melody on it. Then at the end of the day, I still get 50% of that song right. and then you get 25 and your buddy gets 25% because y'all wrote the, you know, lyric and melody. Yeah. So yeah, it gets, uh, it gets wonky and then you get into hip hop and then, you know, then it's all up for grabs. You know, that's, yeah. that's a crazy world. So what if you being in Nashville, what if you sign a quote unquote track guy that is here in town? How is, what's his deal? Um, here in town, it still works like by Nashville rules. You get a you half know, people, or a third or whatever. Yeah, people yeah. are still pretty good at even splits here. Yeah. Um, I do see things changing a bit though of how like, you know, maybe the splits are staying the way we typically do it, but I do see people starting to operate more on a creative level like they do in LA and outside of Nashville. We can get into that in a little bit, but on, on splits, you know, it's still kind of, kind of even. Well, what do you, what do you mean that it's getting to operate more? Um, obviously stuff has gotten a lot more track driven lately. Um, here in town, here in town. Yeah. 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 People love track guys. You know, they love getting in the room with, you know, a great producer writer that can blow out a track and they can have a, a master sounding recording by the end of their writing session. Yeah. You know, whereas like just a few years ago, you know, we're, you guys are recording stuff on an iPhone and it's just shitty little work tape yeah. and we got to hire a band to do a bit demo right. and we've spent a thousand dollars in the studio to demo it. Um, now they're busting them out for free, you know, in a writing session. They sound <laughs> awesome, you know? Yeah. Um, but the difference in like how I think that I could see one a few years ago, we didn't have track guys. Yeah. Now we do. And, the pop side of things has been dealing with that for years. So right. now, now we've introduced that and in how we write in Nashville. We've got producer writers sitting in the room and we've got recordings at the end of the day. Um, I think it's going to go further. Um, and you I've really, been you saying, do? Oh yeah. I've been saying for a while, I was like, man, people are getting so good around here that one thing that I can see happening is, um, uh, these guys are going to start blowing out these tracks and sending these tracks out on the road with artists to write, you know, to write lyric and melody to out on the road because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we want, all want to write with the artist, but they don't have the time to get with everybody that wants to right. write with them. Yeah. So, man, if I were a track guy, I'd be like, hey, here's 15 tracks I'm going to send out with you, you know, listen through them, and then you write, you know, with whoever you want to yeah. out on the road to these tracks. If you got something that inspires you, write to it. You don't even have to sit in the room with me to do it. Right. You know, but... Uh, I get fifty percent of it. You God, know, that's, that's so sad to me. <laughs> if you use the, if you use my track, or yeah. or maybe it's just an even split. You right. know, like 
you know, you bring in whoever you want to and, you know, ride on it. But at the end of the day, I'm an even split with whoever you pull in on it. Um, but that could be super beneficial to the artist because, you know, they are getting these great tracks and they don't have the time to get to know a new guy, but they love yeah. what you do and they can so, ride with their buddy on the road. So you don't think the, uh, like everybody's examples of like Stapleton and Osborne brothers, brothers Osborne. You don't think that stuff is going to kind of help push us back a little bit more organic or is mm. it, is it just going to be more of everything? I just see the market getting even more broad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of it's going away anytime soon. I think we're going to see more, um, you know, just for lack of better terms, authentic country. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think there's a, a market out there that wants to hear more of that. Yeah. Um, but nobody's getting tired of the overly pop country stuff, yeah. you know, and Spotify is really doing a lot to, you know, break the rules of all of that and, and create a broad, um, a broad playing field of like what's acceptable for country music. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Uh, they're able, they're not dictated by radio. So they're able to push things on a country playlist that, Country radio wouldn't dare touch, you know. Um, well, and even like Sirius XM has what nine country stations that take you from everything from Merle Haggard to oh, yeah. whatever is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah. So, man, I think there's something out there for everybody, and I think I think now's a fun time to be in this industry, man. It's it's hard. It's never been easy, but um, but man, it's fun. Like there are no rules. Yeah. You know, uh, you just got to be great. You know, and um, work with the right people and you know there's ears out there that can listen and yeah. will listen you know? is that our old school not even old school but our guys that were big producers years ago with their own studios and everything is that continually kind of going away just because i mean we're, we're sitting in my basement we could literally make a record down here. Mm-hmm. I mean, are the big, big studios going away just because, like you say, and also studio musicians, that they can't be making nearly as many demos and stuff as they used to because of that very thing. Yeah, well, Sit on man, a bus in Des Moines yeah. and make a demo. Yep. Um, man, I was just having this conversation with our friend Nick Raskalinix, oh, yeah. rock producer, and somebody was asking him, like, uh, man, why don't you just, he's leasing out one of our studios at soundstage and, uh, he's got a great room there and, uh, it's not cheap, you know? Yeah. And somebody asked him, he was like, why don't you just build a studio? And he's like, I don't want to take on that liability yeah. of owning a studio. He's like, who's going to buy that? You know, like he said, I'm making enough records now where the bands and labels can pay for me leasing this place out. Yeah. You know? But the studio game, man, that's that's one I wouldn't want to be in. But, you know, fortunately, I'm in a place that, you know, is well-funded. We've got some of Nashville's premieres at recording studios and a lot of work coming in there. Um, as far as the sessions go and players, I, I would love to talk to a session player about that and what their thought is on it. I mean, we've got a lot of sessions that happen at our place, but I know just from my end that on for demo sessions, I mean, we've – very rarely line up any demo sessions anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's not a need because Mm-mm. we're setting our people up with those track guys, you know, and they're knocking out these master quality recordings yeah. by the end of the session and it's not costing anybody a dime. Right. 
So, hmm. yeah, the studio business and the, you know, I would think the you know studio player business would be a hard one to be in. I'm, yeah. I'm not really on that side, but that seems super tough right now. There's also, I've got so many guitar friends that have a place like this in their house, and producers and writers and whatever will just send them tracks. And oh they'll yeah. just put guitar stuff or bass stuff or whatever. Oh yeah. On somebody else's track and shoot it back to them. Yeah. And never leave their house. Absolutely, man. Yeah, you gotta set up like you've got here, man. Yeah. Like you don't need to leave this place. You can do it all right here. I don't wanna leave this place. Yeah, I don't wanna leave here either. <laughs> can I make another drink with this cathead vodka and just spend the night? You can stay here. That's why we got the shower and the bed and everything else. I'll come down Let's and wake do you up. I got coffee. I got all Let's sorts do it. of No, but I mean I, I wonder. The thing that I loved even about demo sessions, though, was all those great players looking at each other and oh, playing yeah. off of each other and even going like, dude, Eric, instead of what you're doing there, you know, go to the two, you know, and, mm. and the creativity of the band making the orga- – I mean, I remember just watching Michael Rhodes one time on a song that me and Jeff Steele wrote, and I saw him – Looking at the court, and I just saw him. He had his glasses up on top of his bald head, and he just looked to the sky and just rolled his eyes like, this is the biggest piece of crap I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And I thought, screw you, dude. We're not paying you to like the song. I want you to play it. Yeah. And then he went in the control room, or I mean in the studio, and as he's playing it, I can see he's doing something with his right hand hitting something on the bass strings and so i went around so i could see him better and he's taking the metal end of a pencil where the eraser goes and he's hitting the string and it's going boing boing and i thought that's why you're a freaking genius because even in a song that you don't know that i saw you hate that you hate you went in there and you played this freaking magical part with as much imagination as anybody mm. in the world. It's mm-hmm. like, and I wonder if stuff like that mm. goes by the wayside when it's, you know, I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. I think that it all like works together now. I mean, it, you know, we all adapt and we, we kind of recognize that times are changing. So we figure out, okay, well, how do we work together and make this even better? And so right. one thing that's interesting now though, um, is years ago when, we were handing these players just really bad guitar vocal work tapes that yeah. they had to hear through and chart out. And then they go into the studio and then like, y'all like this idea? I'm like, well, no, I'm kind of hearing, you know, something like this. Now we've got the luxury of, you know, you're in the room with a, you know, track guy. Um, and y'all can kind of build a skeleton of really what you're hearing sonically. Yeah the magic really happens when you pull those players in, you know, like on a master level, you know? So, um, you get the luxury of being in the room with the track guy and sorting something out. That's really inspiring and badass. Yeah. You know, but then you take that to the next level and you pull in those guys, you know, to, to say, Oh man, I see where you're going with that. Let's do this. You know, man, that's magical. That's why I first started getting pro tools is you'd take a crappy, uh, work tape that you're recording when neither one of the writers know the song. Mm-hmm. And then you give it to Pat Buchanan or Bukovac or whoever, and they'd chart it out and they go, I don't know. I'm not sure what that was. Was it this? Like, no, that's not it. And then everybody's making notes. 
unless like I was fortunate enough, I could kind of keep the same band together for about 10 years. So they kind of knew what I wanted anyway. Mm -hmm. So, but that was before track guys and stuff. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you get those guys in there that just came out of a Stevie Nicks session and now they're playing on your record. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's just, it still blows my mind to see how those guys work. Dude, and, and to think that, I mean, working with the same band like that, I always got five, and a lot of times I got six songs in three hours. Mm, and mm-hmm. you just go, nobody knows this the is sound happening. sound like records. <laughs> yeah. like, you put that out right now. Dude, yeah. and it's unbelievable. And the engineers are the most amazing guys in the world. And mm-hmm. then, you know, I was always amazed to read stories about, you know, this record took three years and, you know, one and a half million dollars to make. And you go, dude, that's, it's still just 10 songs. Yeah. We did that in two days here in Nashville. <laughs> yeah. It cost nine grand or yeah. whatever, you know, plus cartage. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. It's it, crazy, man. I was just talking to, uh, you know, Smith Curry. Oh, yeah. Steel player. Yeah. He was over at the uh, studio the other day and we were talking about some stuff and, um, uh, we got talking about Mutt Lang, you know, yeah. and how he worked. And I guess it was just a really grueling process. But he was say, he, he was telling stories of like buddies that he knew that played on some of those records, and you know they'd sit there for three hours, like you know playing a lick yeah. over and over, yeah, like play that one lick over and over and do it for like three hours, man, you know. And then he'd just take all those parts and pieces yeah. and just put them together and make something just magical chris lisinger said there was a part that he played on a shania record that he was playing up and down you know on different strings in the same position and mutt hated the sound difference in timber between the different strings so they masking taped all of the strings except i think the unwound g and made him play it Toward, from body to headstock, wow. so it was all on the same string, so that that string sounded exactly the same, even though he was playing the same notes. Man, all right, let me ask you this: that <laughs> is so crazy to me. Yeah. So, like, obviously, that guy operates on a level that Absolutely. most people don't. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, sure. so in a grueling process like that, would that song still have been a hit had he done that or not? You Absolutely. Know what I mean? Yes, it yeah. absolutely would have. No, I I got the riot act led to me one read to me by this young guy from Kentucky. He said, uh, "Man, when you're making tracks in your house and stuff, what do you play on?" I go, "I just grab the closest electric I have that's got good strings on it, and I run it through my fractal, just because I'm in a house with my wife and small dogs. And I said I can't be cranking a hundred watt head down here." Mm-hmm. And the fractal's got a million great tones. He goes, yeah. He said, I use a, what did he say, a 57 baseman and a 52 Telecaster and through all these effects and everything. And I said, yeah, I'm sure that sounds wonderful. And then it gets compressed on the way out of the studio on its way to iTunes. It gets recompressed when my 18-year-old niece buys that song, and then she listens to it on 99-cent earbuds. So I'm glad that you're spending all that time <laughs> getting that perfect guitar tone because nobody but you knows that's what that is. Yeah. He was like, crap, you're exactly right. I said, no, it's still still play it. You know, It's yeah. great, man. It's great equipment. You, that's why you bought it was to play it, but... Yeah. At some point, I, so I, I think that. Yeah, you wonder at some point 
how much of it all does it really matter? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and honestly, like it kind of comes down to on a publishing level, like circling back around to, you know, publishing and representing songwriters and songs, like coming back to just a song level, you know? So like, if you got a hit song, that's just fantastic song. If it's out there and pushed out to the masses well enough, does it really matter that, you know, this guitar sounds like shit or not? I also, I fully believe that some people hear with their eyes. Yeah. If they go, oh, this song was written by Eric Hurd. I got to listen to that. Oh, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was at a publishing company. <laughs> I had a publisher that was not, I'd give him a work tape and he'd go, oh, cool. I'll get to that when I can. And he'd go back to doing something. So I, we had a monster writer at that publishing company and I started putting his name <laughs> on the CDs and he'd go, Oh crap. Let's listen to this right now. And he'd put it in the CD player and he'd go, You wrote that with so and so? I go, Uh uh-uh. uh. But I can't get you to listen to anything unless I put his name on it. And he looked at me and he went, That's fair. I deserve that. <laughs> he goes, I'll do better. I said, I'm just trying to. I said, I understand. He's making millions of dollars. I said, I'm just trying to matter. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> That's great. Man. <laughs> yeah. I had to deceive a person to <laughs> listen to my song. I wasn't that good to begin with. <laughs> so, <laughs> are writers yeah. still getting draws in publishing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, That's is, all across the board, man. Some writers will choose to not take a draw. Yeah. You know, just because maybe they don't need it and they don't want to have to recoup anything. Yeah. Uh, other writers need the draw. Yeah. Know? So, yeah. What's recoupable mean? Uh, it means we advance you money and, um, and you don't see any royalties from it on the publishing end, um, until all that money comes through and, and, and just, you know, we've paid ourselves back on the money that we've yeah. advanced. So basically when you get an advance from a publishing company, you're really just asking for your own money in advance, oh, dude. you know, so I remember back in the day, the day some of these cats were making two hundred grand a year on their draw, and it was like, "Don't you understand? You're reaching into the future, grabbing your own money, and pulling it back." Mm-hmm. But it got to be such an ego thing too. Sometimes that people were doing that, but yeah, it's a weird thing. But it's not like you know, for anybody listening that doesn't not, doesn't know publishing, it's not like when your deal ends that you have to pay that money back right. out of your pocket. So I think there are definitely some thankfully. people that, yeah, thankfully <laughs> I think there's some people that see it as just like a money grab. I've got a deal. I'm going to ask for the biggest draw possible. Sure. If you give me that draw, then Hey, if I recoup it, that's great. If I don't, I'm not stuck with the bill for it. You took yeah. the risk. Well, I mean, yeah. that's, I remember uh, Chris Wallen, great writer, great guy. He said, uh, yeah, he's awesome. Like at first publishing deal. So, so you're willing to give me some money, but I got to pay it back, right? And you're willing to help me record some demos, but I got to pay that back, right? And if we get that song cut, you get half the money, right? Right. Yeah, cool. Where do I sign? <laughs> but what nobody ever takes into consideration is you guys. And it's like when I hear people complain about record companies, it's like these are some of the biggest entrepreneurs in the world. They got to get their money back. Oh, or yeah. they go out of business. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's very fair. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing, too, like, you know, a lot of times you'll see guys, you know, asking for, you know, um, just too much, too much money. You know, so if the writer comes and uh, 
and says, well, I think that I'm worth, you know, X amount of dollars. You know? Right. Let's say I'm worth 70 grand. And so they're asking for an advance from us. Well, obviously you're asking for money, you know, your own money. You want us to pay you out right now. Right. So we got to look at the pipeline and kind of go like, well, what cuts have you got coming in? What, where's the, what money are you generating right now that we can advance money from? Like, yeah. you know, and so then it's a risk factor on our end of like, what do we think that, you know, is a reasonable amount that we can give you and take a risk on? Yeah. You know? Um, but you know, I've certainly seen, you know, things where it's just like, you know, asking for, you know, way unrealistic, you know, numbers like, well, Where's that money coming from? Yeah. Maybe we can get there, but you're not generating that kind of income right now to justify that kind of advance. Well, and, and so many writers want a publishing deal, but, well, how many songs are you bringing with you? Well, mm-hmm. none. So None. So you're yeah, starting so we from, immediately have nothing to work right. with. Right. We don't even have anything to pitch. Yeah. So, yeah, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We just had a uh, very important law signed called the Music Modernization Act. I'm going to take that last hit there. <laughs> Can you ex- kind of explain that and why it's so important to writers and publishers and everybody? Uh, yeah, gosh, there's so many people that could really get into this a lot better than me. But basically, um, it's really done a lot for copyright reform on a song level because um, we've been working under some really outdated Dude. laws uh, for, you know, since the early 1900s, yeah. you know, that have not been updated and um, obviously don't factor in the digital, digital age and how people pay it on streaming and everything. Yeah. So it's just been very antiquated. Um, and um, those laws absolutely have to be changed yeah. you know, so that you guys can get, paid fairly you know because with what's happening in the explosion of streaming um i mean on a songwriting level you may have somebody may have like millions and millions of streams on a song and if you're the record label and you own that actual master recording you're doing great they're loving it but on the publishing side we're not making beans on that like yeah Man, that's awesome! You made you got thirty million streams off of that, but man, that's not going to buy my kids dinner, no. you know. Um, and that's so. no joke. I had a statement when this stuff started. Uh, Brooks and Dunn song had like three hundred and forty thousand streams or whatever on my BMI check, and it was literally worth like three point four cents at the time. I mean, it was just. It was completely worthless. Yeah, completely worthless and way, way out of balance. Where the, you know, the master owners, um, you know, record labels would make way more um, than what <coughs> publishers and songwriters yeah. would make on it. But uh, this will be fantastic for us. We still don't know exactly what it looks like yet. We right. haven't, you know, uh, set the rates yet. Um, so that's coming. So we'll see what the actual rates look like and what we really are going to get paid on it. But it's going to be definitely be more than what we've been getting. Hopefully, yeah. it's going to be substantial. Who yeah. sets the rates? I can't. I know I've, I've done a bunch of reading. I can't even remember who it is. It's going to be. Um, if I don't have this wrong, it's going to be set by a new rate court of people within the industry. Right. So it will be industry professionals 
non-biased committee uh, representing publishers and songwriters um, and not, you know, like the Department of Justice. Right. Um, yeah. Um, which is, yeah. So anyway, I, I it, wish he had Bart Herbison here talking. Yeah. You know, NSA, I mean, he's done so much work for all of us and a huge advocate for publishers and songwriters to help push this through. Um, obviously, he can speak on much more depth than I can, but it's going to be a great thing for all of us. Yeah. Know? Wish I was still having hits, <laughs> man. Um, dude, I tell you, I tell you what, I kind of wonder. Like, you know, there's a lot of catalog acquisition happening right now, and sometimes you kind of wonder, like, wow, man, you really paid, overpaid for that catalog, you know? And yeah. it leaves a lot of us scratching our head. However, I also think, all right, if these new rates are set in yeah. place and are retroactive, you know, which some of it's already taking place and you know which is great is it? um but once these new rates are determined and you've paid for what seemingly is a absorbent amount of money for this catalog right now once these rates catch up to that man you guys may be laughing all the way to the bank because yeah. of this what seemed to be a stupid deal now you know they're buying low you know hmm. like buy low sell high man you know so i think I don't know. I think it's all good, man. It's we're moving into a really good space. When yeah, back in the day when all the streaming came out and Napster hit, you know, like it crushed the industry. And the first people I remember getting hit were the record labels. Oh man, you know they got nailed with all that stuff. And it was the publishers that got just railroaded at the end of that. So the the late if you look at it, it's a train cart. This train's rolling through. Napster comes along, the record labels, the front cars, freight train, it gets clobbered, man. And then it takes a little while for, you know, the caboose, which is the publisher, to feel that impact. Yeah. Now we're in a stage the past few years where you don't hear the record labels bitching about streaming. Yeah. You never hear about that because they're doing great. Well, there's no production, physical production cost. Yeah. They're not paying to make CDs. No, it's good for, yeah. it's good for them now. Absolutely. So... But it's that train theory of like, you know, man, they're in that freight car and they've pushed through it now. They're doing good and we're in the caboose. We're dragging through it and I think we're about to pull out of it, you know. Yeah. And we're about to get into a new era of things. And it's exciting. We've got things to work out, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but it's moving in the right direction. Dude, when I was on the road with the Dixie Chicks way back when, you know, back before fire was invented, I remember <laughs> I, I was in... Lincoln, Nebraska, sold out show, whatever. I'd already done the meet and greet, so I was just walking around, had my laminate, and this kid, little kid, came up to me and goes, are you with the Dixie Chicks? I said, yeah, I'm with their record company. I think music should be free. I said, really? I said, okay. Well, I said, what does your dad do for a living? He's a dentist. I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll make with you. If I give you, as long as I'm at Sony Music, if I give you and your family free CDs for every record we put out, as long as I'm there, I want your dad to give me and my family free dental work. And he goes, well, he can't do that. That's how he makes his living. And I just looked at him. I said, exactly. Mm -hmm. How do you think we pay for trucks and buses and diesel and crew and everything else? Mm Mm-hmm. I said, it's because we sell records. 
Oh, I never thought about that. Like, yeah. But I think that, man, the, what we do is such a weird thing. And, and like, oh, I absolutely. think that we've got a lot of educating, you know, people on how we make our money and how we support our families and, and careers. You know, like when I was growing up, um, I didn't know how people got paid. All I knew is I yeah. could turn on the radio any time of the day in my truck and listen to whatever <laughs> they were playing. And I didn't have to pay a dime for Absolutely. it. And yep. I had this, you know, a pack of 20 cassettes and I could sit there and record my favorite songs on the radio. And I had them right there and listen to my mixtapes <laughs> basically for free anytime I wanted to yep. and give my friends copies of it. You know, like I didn't, I didn't know no. like, Hey, they sell cassette tapes. We can record the stuff. That's what they're for, right? That's what they're for. Yeah. You know, so I think the industry has done a big disservice on you know, like even in the past before all the streaming happened of like really setting a precedent. Of, yeah. You know, not educating people on how you know everybody's paid. You know, like man, I remember uh, it took me fifteen years to get my mom and dad to understand record promotion. And then another 15 years to get him to understand publishing and writing. It's like, you know, I'd talk to my mom, and did you sell any songs today? It's like, well, you don't really sell them, I said. Uh, it's more like I rent them. Like, we still own the song, but somebody else is using it. And that was kind of the only way I could ever get her to yeah. figure that out. But it is. It's, it's, the other thing is, there's, there's kind of nothing to hold yeah, you know, you, like you say, whether it's a CD or whatever, that music just comes out of these speakers, and, mm -hmm. and there's really nothing tangible there almost. Yeah. So it yeah. is a little bit looking behind the curtain when you, yeah, figure out how the sausage is made. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. I, I don't know. Hopefully, um, I don't know. Hopefully, all the streaming and everything will really help out because people will be able to. You know, they see that they've got this, you know, un endless access. You know, yeah. if they pay, hopefully, pay for a service. You know, and I can listen to whatever I want to anytime I want to. At least they're they're paying. You yeah. Know? Um, but you know, honestly, I think it's kind of weird to say, but I think radio through the years has confused a lot of people. Yeah. You know, because and you walk into stores, you hear music playing anywhere yeah. you go, you hear music playing, and they don't know that somebody's paying for it. Somebody's paying for it, but yeah. we get to enjoy it. Yeah, not knowing who's paying for it, and there's nothing. and you don't think about it, and so you feel like that it's free. Yeah, and certain songs make me want to buy corduroys. That's just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but or yeah. cathead vodka. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, but like Scott Borchetta's <laughs> thing, the whole music has value thing. For the longest time, you're absolutely right. I don't think it, people thought of music as value. Unless you were buying a ticket to go to a concert or mm. you were at the record store buying a buying a record. Yeah, because you wanted like you wanted to see the pictures in there. Yeah. You wanted something to hang on to. We didn't have internet to no. be able to see any video we wanted of the band performing or photos of the backstage, you know, like you had to buy that stuff Absolutely. to see it. I want to know? read the liner notes. I want to see yeah. Where Nick Raskulinitz recorded this record, or who mm. played guitar, or what I love seeing that stuff. I wonder if, like, on the streaming side of things, if you know more of that stuff will be introduced to really incentivize people to pay for the service. You yeah, know? Uh, like, what kind of access, real access, can you get? You know that um, that you can't get by just searching searching on Google. Yeah, you know what I mean. 
Like give give people a reason to buy. It's going to have to be yeah. some some sort of added value, mm-hmm. something or other. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's it's the wild west out there. You know, I think it's a really <laughs> exciting time for music. I mean, it's easier to get music out there now than it ever has been. You yeah. Know? Oh, um, absolutely. The hard part about that is cutting through all the crap that's out there. Yeah. Um, well, going back real quick. You took composition classes and stuff at college, and I always see and I've had friends teach songwriting, like at Belmont and stuff. Is there a short answer to it? how? Like, if you sign somebody that you need to work with as a writer, how can you make them a better writer? Ooh, man, that's a, yeah. It's not like you know you make a better amplifier by building forty of them, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. The, how do you how do you teach something that's creative? Um, I think you're going to get on that question different answers from oh, every different sure, publisher yeah. you ask that. Yeah. So I can only speak into how I would answer it. Um, but for me, I I'm not going to sign any writer or put my neck out on the line for anybody that I don't think can deliver by doing what they do. Yeah, you know. So if you're at that point to get a deal you've already reached a certain level of professionalism that I just expect every song that you write should be turned in and be a good song. Yeah. Maybe we don't have a home for it, right? you know, but um, I don't think that, uh, that every song that's turned in, there needs to be a lesson on. Oh, no, I need absolutely. To, you know, say, okay, like right here, here's what we could do better. Like, you know, I work with some great people like you and I have worked together. Like if I, in my, the way that I work, if I did that to every song that you sent me, you'd be like, fuck off, man. (laughs) You know, like you write it then. Well, to me, it's like where people need help is form. Like, you know, maybe the second verse is actually the first verse, you know, and maybe let's flip those two around and see about that. Or maybe let's Mm -hmm. put the bridge up here instead of down there. Or maybe let's take that bridge out. I mean, that to me is like, yeah, if you're yeah. not already a fully formed, if I, right, yeah. you probably shouldn't have a deal. Yeah, if I've got like a real specific idea of like something just really hits me and I'm like, dude, like, you know, from a 30,000, sometimes you can get so close to it. You know, Absolutely. sometimes it's nice to have a 30, somebody come in with a 30,000 foot view and say, man, yeah. dude, have y'all thought about this? Because this could be cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then sometimes I will do that or um, I will make suggestions if I, if, a writer has written something specifically for a project. I'll say, Hey, I know for a fact, they're not going to say this. Right. You know, they won't like, sing about drinking or yeah. what. Yeah. So exactly. let's tweak exactly. that line. Um, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll make comments like that. But for the most part, you know, your job is to write songs. My job is to pitch them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so let's, you know, you're going to write some songs, some days that are better than others. Some days I'm going to have days better than others. And so we got to team up, put our heads together and dive in with the people that you really believe in and get to work, you know? So, um, I don't think that on my job that I've got any responsibility to to make you any better than you are versus you making me any better than I am. We both iron sharpens iron, you know? That's kind of like biblical or something. Yeah. (laughs) No, my last publishing deal, they set me up. For some reason, they kept setting me up with these 17 and 18-year-old girls. 
and they'd want to write songs like butt dial and stuff. And <laughs> I came home and I was talking to Amy. I go, well, first of all, it's been a long time since I was an 18-year-old girl, so I don't really know what the crap they're thinking about. And Amy goes, oh, why are they forcing you to give songwriting lessons to these people? Because that's kind of what it mm-hmm. was. Like, mm-hmm. well, they don't know how to write. And, mm-hmm. and it, it was very frustrating. So I like what you say. Yeah. It's such a weird balance with that, though, because, like, there's got to be an element of, um, you know, investing early in oh, talent, sure. you know, Absolutely. because it could be yeah. the next Taylor Swift. Yeah. But you do that too much with a writer <laughs> and talking about getting beat down fast. Oh, man. You know, like that's, you know, gets to be really discouraging. Like how many of these people are we going through before one of these hits? Yeah. You know, um, so there's got to be a balance there. And, yeah. um, you know, I, with the people that I work with, I, I like to try to think that i give some balance, you know, I'm sure yeah. there's definitely times where they could be, you know, you know, better one way or another, you know, but, um, yeah, but it's, it's tough. Well, what would you be doing if you weren't, uh, in the music business? Gosh. Um, making homeless. Gu- <laughs> <laughs> would you be making guns with your brother? Danny no, Jackson? actually I'd probably be flying planes. Serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I come from a family of pilots, and what? Uh, and I spent time. I like I did all my requirements for my pilot's license, my check or not my check ride, but my written test, fulfilled all my requirements and everything. The only thing I haven't done is my check ride to get my pilot's license. Um, Every male member of my family except me has their pilot's license. Really? My dad just quit flying. He turned eighty, but he's got like thirteen thousand hours. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. My brother just bought an airplane. Really? He had, wow, man. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Well, see? Yeah. Cat That's head, probably what I'd be doing. Cathead's like, truth serum, man. <laughs> <laughs> that cathead will bring the truth out, man. Well, what's next for you? Gosh. Um, I don't know, man. I'm really enjoying being at Black River and working with the writers and artists that, that, that we've got there. Um, we just signed a guy out in L.A. that... Uh, that we're really excited about. He's a country artist, but very different. Cool. Um, so it, his name is Willie Jones. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Um, but I'm just having a good time, man. You know, I'm just like taking it as it comes and, you know, kind of letting my career unfold a day at a time. You know, I don't know where I'm going to wind up. I might be in Black River in 20 more years. Or yeah. Maybe I'm doing management in the next few years. Who knows? But I'm having fun right now. Good. You know? So, well, yeah. I appreciate your friendship. We don't see each other nearly enough. Dude, but, you'll uh, see me a lot more now that I'm in this room. This room is awesome. <laughs> well, you know where it is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. This is great, man. Thanks for having me. Love you, buddy. Yeah, love you too, man. Thanks, Eric. Yeah.